Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here today with Mr. Dan Pickering, founder and CIO at Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, I know it's towards the end of the day. How's it been for you? Is it Are you wore out or are you getting, just getting started? This is one of those days where you're a little worn out. We've got earnings season for the fourth quarter starting to kick in. Halliburton reported earnings this morning. That started off pretty early and it's kind of a tough day in the market. So always watching to see how energy stocks trade. And, and yes. when they're down, it doesn't feel as good as when they're up. So no kidding. But I'm excited to be on with you today. No, I appreciate that. And, and I can imagine like I, I'm a, just a, you know, a novice trader. And I would say that, you know, at the very, at the most, I can imagine sitting here watching things up and down every single day. I mean, how exhausting must that be? I mean, are you literally glued to, to watching tickers and just, I mean, I'm sure you are, but how do you turn that off? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So having invested in energy companies for a long time now that the volatility is part of it and you sort of you get used to the fact that the market's not always going to agree with you on any given day and the game plan is to sort of as they say in hockey terms right skate to where the puck's going to be yeah and so it's not always easy on a day-to-day basis but at the end of the day you got to spend the time know what you're investing in whether it's a public company or a private company sure and then have the faith that that's going to play out over a period of time. Right. Well, I'm sure you've embraced it. And, and like they always say, you chose the game, the game didn't choose you. So right. if you don't like it, you know, you, you, you lay in the bed, you might as well make it right. Well, I, I appreciate the hospitality and especially allowing me to come to your office to record. Kate Ogden's the one who set this up and I have to give her a shout out. She did a great job filling your schedule and making this happen. Nor I've got it about two months worth of content to put out. And, and she made a request, which I was happy to, you know, to commit to is, is getting this out before your presentation on the 31st. What is the presentation? I was going to ask her, but I figured I'd ask you. Sure. So I'm going to be part of a, a financial executives network presentation around energy. It's around the oil and gas sort of divestitures, acquisitions, M&A type environment. And mm-hmm. So we're doing that on the morning of the 31st at the Federal Reserve. And so it should be a good and interesting panel. It's certainly a topic that everybody's wanting to understand right now. Is, of course. Is, are we going to see a lot more deal activity in the oil field space? And so I appreciate you making the time to get in and, and talk with me beforehand. Yeah. So for the listeners out there who, who are interested in something like that, how does the, the public get access to that presentation or listen to it? Or is that for a certain community or how does that work? Yeah. So the the organization that's putting it on, I think, allows folks to come in and, and participate. And so there's a website, which is thefeng.com, I believe, yeah. Financial Executive Network. And so I just go there and take a look at the the, the event. And I think there's a way to RSVP from the website. Gotcha. Well, before we keep going into the weeds, I I was rather impressed coming in here. Obviously, you have a lot of stuff going on in your office, but I couldn't help but notice the array of you've got In-N-Out Burger stuff. You've got a neat plate coming from, I'm not sure, somewhere where maybe in Asia, an NCAA basketball. You've got J.J. Watt jerseys. You got Dallas Cowboys football, 
a Nevada license plate. H- how do you sum all of this up? Are you a collector or are you are you a hoarder? I mean, what's going on? Because it's very interesting, and I could talk about all this, you know, on another episode. But I wanted to ask. Yeah, with this, I think this is this is the result of thirty years worth of gigaws that you get from. <laughs> The football is, remember the old Staubach Realty Company? That was a, Roger Staubach started a real estate company. I came in and talked about energy to a real estate group, so you get a football. Ah. The plate is from Korea. We spent three years trying to do energy stuff with Korean partners. Gotcha. And what we learned from that is it's very challenging to raise money in Asia for energy. Okay, why is that? Koreans... The Korean institutions don't yeah. like to take a lot of risk. So they're okay. very excited about doing projects that have a 8 to 10% rate of return and 0% downside protected, you know, you pay me if it doesn't work. Right. It's not really the way the oil patch works. Yeah. And so it took us a while to, to figure that out. And so it's an area that we've decided is going to have to go forward without us. And we're, we, we, we no longer make trips to Korea or Japan or or China to try and raise money. In-N-Out Burger, I love In-N-Out Burger. But the reality of all this is that when you're 53 years old and been doing energy for 30 years, yeah. you just collect a lot of junk. And <laughs> I haven't moved offices in a while. And okay. so the junk hasn't wound up in a drawer. Makes sense. Makes sense. Obviously, you are you love your books. One that no, I noticed, and I read it actually too, is The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. I actually tried to get him on the podcast and I'm still working on it. I hope you can. Yeah. So he, he's got a gentleman that works for him who I've been you know going back and forth with. So if, if anyone out there can help me with that, I'd certainly appreciate it. If not, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to be persistent without hopefully bugging them and eventually it'll happen. I'm in sales. So I, I'm used to, you know, just going, you know, playing the long game, if you will. So I want to start by reading the quote from your website that I'm sure resonates with a lot of, especially the rest of the industry. We need to see EMP industry start to scale back their growth. We call this value over volume. For a lot of people who don't understand that, how would you describe that? Sure. If we look at, and it encapsulates the whole shale story, if you think back over the last 10 years, we had a resource that we didn't know a lot about. So in 2003, the Barnett Shale starts to emerge, the technologies of horizontal drilling, multi-stage fracturing, all of a sudden... We're getting oil and gas, at that time gas, out of places we didn't think we could. And so mm-hmm. and so we start to see the ability for a very mature industry. Keep in mind, 2003, U.S. energy production has been declining for 25 years, right? Booms into, into the, the 70s and, and declines, 80s, 90s, first part of the, the 2000s. So- a very mature industry that is struggling to figure out new places to to develop hydrocarbons, all of a sudden shale is opening up this growth opportunity. Right. And so we see this explosion of activity where the industry got very fragmented very quickly because hold on a second, let's drill for let's let's test and figure out where shale is really going to be productive. And so that translated to a huge amount of capital flooding into the industry. And so a business that had been shrinking started to expand. A business that had been concentrated in a few areas started to expand. And so what you saw then is over the course from 2003 to call it 2014, mm-hmm. the industry basically took most 
of the market share in terms of worldwide production growth. So if you think about demand that's growing a million barrels a day, the U.S. was growing production a million barrels a day. That's fabulous until we don't need a million barrels a day. Right. And that's kind of the market that we entered in, in late 2014. And so an industry that had spent every dollar of its cash flow, borrowed money and, and sold new equity so that they could spend and grow much faster, starting to have to react to a world that is now capital starved, mm -hmm. that doesn't need to grow as quickly. And so value over volume, our point is that growth was really good for a period of time. Yeah, That made people a lot of money. Companies got a lot bigger. Shareholders made a lot of money. That hasn't worked for the past five years. And people need to realize that what value is today, how you create value for shareholders, for value for investors, is really more about disciplined investing. Right. And so we'd rather see folks focus on the value creation process of generating a return on their capital versus just growing volumes because the just growing volumes game doesn't work anymore. Right. Not right. in this environment. For sure. So I've started in the oil field in 2004, seen a, you know, a few ups and downs, but you know, since the most recent one, that that's one that really hit home for me. I think the last one I was still, you know, working rigs. And so having the exposure and, and getting to talk to folks, you know, like yourself or people that are, you know, sort of, you know, more inclined with the business side of it and, and seeing the result of a downturn, not necessarily just, oh, you know, I lost my job, but, but seeing the impact more on even a global level. Is it, are we part of another cycle or is the is the industry in itself seeing a major shift? And if we are in a cycle, what part of it are we in? And and do we see this coming full loop again in the future? Or, I mean, ESG and, and, and green energy, I'm, I'm sure plays a part of that. But what, I mean, can you talk a little bit on that? A lot to unpack in that. In, sure. In yeah. That I asked like so, three questions. Yeah. No, that's okay. So I think that there's definitely a question out there right now, if you are a an investor putting money into the energy patch from the outside, there's a, a question about, is there a change in the business that's coming from a combination of peak demand, meaning we're going to use less hydrocarbons going forward, and that's tied to things like electric vehicles or the need to lower carbon footprint. So there's a question, is this a secular downturn right. that, that we are have now seen the the best it's going to be, and it's never going to get better again. Or is it cyclical, to your question, and then where are we in the cycle? So my answer is the writing is on the wall around things like ESG, peak demand, but it's 20 years out, 30 years out. I mean, it's 2035, 2040, 2050. And my belief in that is essentially that if you look around the world, growth takes is energy intensive. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of people living at a fairly low standard of living. This is the moral case for fossil fuels a little bit, yeah. which is there's a lot of people that want to have what the developed world has. They want to drive cars. They want to have cool stuff. That's all very energy intensive. And so we have not developed a good alternative to hydrocarbon consumption for most of those things. And so as long as the world grows, GDP is expanding, I think it's going to be energy intensive. You've started to see the first leveling off of consumption, for instance, in China. Mm -hmm. they, they The environment for them was a luxury. They wanted to grow fast and they wanted to fuel that with coal-fired plants and whatnot. That works until 
you start killing people in Beijing because the air quality's bad. And then right. they say, this isn't going to work. So you're starting to see some leveling off of that, that demand intensity, but it's going to be there for a while. So I don't think there is a secular change. You can't convert people to electric cars fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think it's going to take a while, which means we're in a down cycle, but there is an up cycle out there. Right. When's it coming? We're six years in. Thanksgiving of 2019, we entered the sixth year. It was the fifth year anniversary of OPEC saying no moss around right. U.S. shale production. And so we're six years in. Capital is being starved from the business. And so I think that you're, you've seen U.S. rig count to slow down a lot. You've seen U.S. companies start to say, I'm only going to spend my cash flow, maybe even less, because I want to give you a dividend. I want to give you share repurchases to back to their investors. Right. So I think that we're approaching an inflection point where U.S. production, which has been growing really fast, is now growing slower and may stop growing in maybe 2021. Hmm. If that's the case, this market will start to tighten up. And right. then, of course, you've got the geopolitical element, which we can talk about a little bit later. But, yeah. you know, you're, the market's very complacent around things like geopolitical risk. But if you, if you were to have, if, if the Iran situation had escalated instead of de-escalating, then all of a sudden that tightness comes back to the business really quickly because we're going to need every drop of U.S. supply if we've got a problem somewhere else. Makes sense. So I meant to ask this a little earlier because I'm always very interested in, in, in the person behind the microphone. And, and there's questions that come off of what you just talked about. But before I forget, you obviously have you know extensive experience within the oil and gas industry. Where did did you always know that you were going to be in the finance world? You know, what did growing up look like? Did you have parents in the industry? I mean, what what does that look like and why did you choose this path? I grew up in a small town in Missouri, so it was a long way away from any kind of oil production, but we did yeah. have a an engineering college nearby that did petroleum engineering and I came into undergrad as a petroleum engineer in 1984. And so there'd been this big boom in the 70s and into the early 80s. And so it felt like that it was just a neat, hot area. And petroleum engineers made a lot of money, and that was attractive to me. And so sure. I said, hey, I think this is what I'm going to do. And I spent four years as an engineer and said, I, this is not what I want to do forever. And so finance, to me, I got in the business because I was really interested in the stock market. And um, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer for the rest of my life. I liked the oil business. I think I, you know, I kind of invested in understanding it. And so, when I got the chance to, after going to business school, got the chance to to work in the investing business on oil and gas stuff, it was a really great fit. And so that was 1994, and here we are, however many years later. So right. uh, that's you know, I didn't oh I didn't this was not the grand plan, but kind of follow your nose and do what you like. And here's where I wound up. Right, right. So what about in high school? Were you pretty studious? I mean, were you, did you grow up? I mean, you went to engineering school, so you obviously had some sort of science math interests. I mean, you know, did, was it back then even too? For 42 kids in my graduating class, so a very small school. Yeah. Math and science. Why did I become an engineer? I was good at math and science, and it's fun to do stuff you're good at. For so sure. yeah. <laughs> that, that was kind of, that's how I got there. So... I'm a big believer that it's very difficult when you're sitting at one part of your career to ever understand what it's going to be like 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road. Of course. That would have been the case for me. I'm good at math and science, therefore I should be an engineer and 
you know, that lasted for a while, but, but math and science and got me, got me started. Yeah, fair enough. No, that's, that's exactly a good answer. So we talked a little bit about value over volume. There's obviously leaders in ENP that understand the concept. Who would you say, you know, on, you know, publicly traded is doing a fairly good job and, and who understands that? Like who, who's kind of the leader in this pack right now? Mm-hmm. So what I would say is value over volume is something I believe in. I think that you're seeing it rewarded in the marketplace. Conoco is the best example. Okay. Conoco is not doing anything particularly exciting on the growth side of the equation. They're a 3% annual grower on the volume side. Mm-hmm. They're doing that while generating, you know, returns above their cost of capital, which sounds like a no-brainer, except there's a lot of companies that haven't been doing that. And they're doing it while, you know, printing a big dividend, a decent-sized dividend. And their commentary is they want projects to work at $40 oil or they don't want to spend on them. Mm-hmm. And so they're protecting their downside with that decision on what what projects to invest in. They've got a nice dividend. They've got the visibility of free cash growth going forward. And they're doing it with a, what I would call is a, a very moderate pace of growth. So Conoco would be an example of a company that's decided to go down that path and, and been rewarded for it. You're starting to see a, a number of other companies that have an acreage base that could grow it. They could drill and grow at 20%. They've chosen to spend less and grow at 10%. I'd argue 10% is still too high. My view would be there's no need to grow in, in the next couple of years. The U.S. and the world doesn't need the production. And so my argument, what I've said, Justin, is, is one, two, three. I think companies ought to get their debt down to basically one times EBITDA, you know, 2% dividend yield and 3% free cash return in another way, whether it's a special dividend or, or buying back shares. If you do that, you know, that one, two, three, your balance sheet's very strong. Right. You're giving shareholders a dividend that they can hold on to. And you're saying, I've got enough money, I can give you back cash in, in other ways. Those That makes you very competitive with the S&P 500, other mm-hmm. industries. And so that might actually bring investors back after kind of a five-year drought. No kidding. No, that's a good answer. So there's a lot of companies that obviously haven't been able to adopt that concept. Is it... And maybe they're trying, but is it a function of this? They're in too deep, or you know, because it, it sounds obvious, right? Yep. But yep. there's companies that are still filing Chapter Eleven that are still struggling, you know, bleeding. I mean, so why can't they adjust? Yeah, when getting your debt down sounds easy, but when you've got too much debt or the debt's coming due quickly, you're in a hole you can't get out of. And so gotcha. there's a number of companies that overlevered and once. You know, once you've spent too much money, once you have that credit card debt as an individual, how do you get out? Right. And so the companies that have been most successful had, they weren't over levered, they had leverage, but they've just chosen instead of drilling with the money, they're giving it back to shareholders. And so when they can make those choices, they're not shrinking, they can hold their production flat. Those are the companies. So there's been a number of upstream and oil field service companies that have that have taken that path, but some guys are too far gone. Okay. There's another set of companies that that I worry about, which are small to medium-sized publics. They don't have so much debt that they're going to go bankrupt. They don't have so much cash flow or they don't have an acreage base that's good enough 
that allows them to to make that transition to a dividend payer and a free cash generator. And so they'll probably just limp along and they could limp along for years. And what the industry really needs is fewer companies, more con- more consolidation, mm-hmm. more assets in, in fewer hands so that you can get the economies of scale to develop the assets and you get the discipline that comes from fewer players. Okay. So some guys haven't gotten there and won't be able to, and some guys have chosen to grow faster. I think the faster growers are going to slow down and the guys that are in trouble are probably going to stay in trouble unless they get bailed out by really much better commodity prices. Hmm. No, I hear what you're saying there. So, so then how would you describe the change in focus, and especially from an investment side on, on ESG and that's environment, social and corporate governance, you know, with regards to creating value through responsible investing? Because it seems like historically, maybe it wasn't quite like that. And to me, just through the, the research that I do and, and seeing things online, ESG seems to be a, a hot topic. So can you touch on that? ESG is a very hot topic, and I think it wraps in what I would say is climate and carbon and methane emissions, and there's there's a number of ways that it applies to the oil patch. I think ESG is really being driven by the combination of the groundswell of, of public opinion that says we need mm. to be doing better as a, as a business needs to do better, not just the oil business, but every business needs to do better. You know, Times Person of the Year is Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old activist that says, you know, climate's an issue. Right. So you look at that and you say the writing's on the wall that the oil industry and all industries need to do a better job addressing climate change now as in carbon. And we were a, a big carbon generator as an oil and gas business. And so I think what you're starting to see is that the focus on this issue is really being driven by the general public. That seeped then into the mindset of investors, mm. both big pensions as well as you know mutual fund managers. You saw a letter from Larry Fink runs BlackRock. It's the biggest global asset manager oh, yeah, in I the saw, world. Basically yeah. said uh, the environment, climate is going to be central to what they're doing as they think about investing. And so what's happened is people think something needs to change. That seeped into the way that that capital providers are thinking about the world and, you know, the golden rule, he who has the gold rules. And so the money is basically telling industry, you've got to do better. Right. So, I mean, is there like today, is there much availability for capital, you know, in, in this year or, or is, is Wall Street and everyone kind of waiting to see how we adapt to the, to the new way of doing things? Yeah. And, and so what I would say is the capital starvation that's kind of come to the oil patch over the last four or five years. It's not really ESG driven. That's a part of it. Okay. The biggest the biggest driver is that the returns haven't been very good. Mm-hmm. Oil prices went down, you know, energy company stocks are down twenty-five to seventy-five percent. If you're in private equity, you know, those those private companies haven't added a lot of value in the last three or four or five years. And so folks have said I'm not giving you guys any more money until the results are better. Right. So, and then you put on top of it the climate issues. And so that's another thing that the industry needs to do better before folks will pay attention. So I think that that ESG plus returns has translated to a hands-off approach from capital markets. So no, no IPOs, 
no willingness to give new equity. Mm. Debt has gotten a little bit more expensive and harder to come by. Banks are scaling back their reserve-backed loans. And so, and it all makes sense because we don't need the oil back to value over volume. We've got plenty of crude. And so if we've got plenty of crude, we don't need guys spending a bunch of money. So you don't need a bunch of external capital. So fund it yourself. Right. And, and that's kind of where we've evolved to over the last five or six years. That's a cyclical thing. Mm. When the market tightens up, when we need that crude, we're going to say, gosh, guys, go out and drill and here's some money to do it. Right. But that's two or three years away at least. I got gotcha. you. So what are your thoughts on some of the, a lot, well, I say a lot, but the majors, Shell, BP, and then some of the large caps investing in green energy? You know, the a lot of the earnings calls, you know, the CEO for BP is one that sticks out. There was a, and I, I think it was a Q3 earnings call. A lot of the discussion was focused around that, talking about how much money he was going to invest or that they were going to invest this year. I mean, is that something that's going to trickle down into to the large caps, mid caps? I mean, are more people going to start leaning towards focusing on that? So I think the issue is capturing a lot more mind share than it is share of the capital budgets. So you look, Shell announced a really, you know, $300 million focus on, on 2020 climate spending, tiny compared to their billions and billions they're spending on oil and gas projects. Right. So the answer is, I think, ESG, sustainability, climate, et cetera, that's becoming a cost to doing business for mm. oil and gas companies. The big ones have more cash, so 300 million's a lot of money, but not a huge percent of their budget, but it makes a big splash. And so I think what you're going to see is that given the leadership of the larger companies, Exxon, Shell, you know, Repsol says they're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. If you're a mid to small cap, even a large cap US oil and gas company, the writing's on the wall there. Yeah. The big guys are doing it. You're going to have to figure out your strategy. I don't actually think that that... So I would put the spending in the cost of doing business category, not the generating fabulous returns. Mm-hmm. And so... What I don't think investors want, they don't want Shell to spend a, you know, half of their budget on climate projects that return 5% yeah. when their core business should be returning 15%. So I think, think about it as a cost of doing business. Everybody's going to be doing more over the course of time. And the small guys will be followers, probably not leaders on, on the topic. Yeah, no, I could see that for sure. So do you ever think we'll get back to, you know, the, the lavish lifestyle of 80 to $100 oil, assuming no geopolitical things happen? I mean, obviously, we can't, you know, the crystal ball is not going to tell us exactly. But the way things are going, I mean, are we going to just have to accept that, that, you know, trying to make money at anywhere from 45 to $65 a barrel is, is going to be the new norm? I mean, because it kind of, the discussions I've had with folks is that that's sort of the general consensus. Uh What are your thoughts? Well, I think the behavior of the patch shows you that 45 to 55, certainly it's probably not good enough on a sustained basis. Why do I say that? OPEC's cutting production. If Mm -hmm. if $50 oil was okay with OPEC, why are they cutting production? Right. They've got a lot of embedded social costs. If you look at the returns generated by the shale companies, they've got a lot of free acreage right now. They spent Thirty or $40,000 an acre 
six years ago, five years ago, four years ago. So they can make money drilling on acreage they already bought. Right. They can make money at 50. If they had to go spend that 30 or 40 or $50,000 an acre again, they wouldn't be making money. So generating, you know, an acceptable return. So I think that that we're at this price level because the whole US oil and gas business plowed a huge amount of money into the sector and we are living through, you know, that, that was a big binge drinking episode and, right. you know, it's now Sunday morning and we've got the hangover and we're just trying to kind of make it through the day. I think there'll be more parties in the oil patch, you know, with oil in the 70s and, and 80s. Yeah. They're a few years away still. And I think this capital discipline that, that investors have imposed on the sector, I don't think that's going away for two or three years. Oil goes to 65 tomorrow. I wouldn't expect rig count to surge to the upside because if it did, investors are going to say, ah, here we go again, same old, you know, crazy industry and punish the companies that are boosting their budgets, right? Because investors are still in the mode of give me that extra cash. Right. So I think the capital discipline's in pace for two or three years. I think that'll create the cyclical opportunity that tightens the market, that creates the 65 or $75 oil. And so, yes, we'll get back there. It's not going to happen necessarily quickly without some sort of an event. And every year we get closer to that peak demand year. So, you know, we don't have a ton of fabulous cycles in front of us. Right. Until we hit that point where hydrocarbon demand is going to peak. Sure. What are your thoughts on gas? I mean, I, I've heard anywhere from, you know, people thinking it's going to zero to, you know, below a dollar. But the outlook... I think the the folks that are long on gas seem to be pretty bullish, but in the immediate future, everyone seems to be <laughs> pretty bearish. What what are your thoughts? I gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago to a group that I hadn't talked to in 12 years. So okay. I went back and pulled the presentation. It was called the Natural Gas Conundrum back in 2008. Yeah. Gas was $7.70. Today it's 2 bucks. My point back then was then we had too much gas. Today we have too much gas. So <laughs> yeah. the, the ability to very quickly add meaningful supply in gas is certainly there still. We've got fabulous reservoirs, Haynesville, you know, Marcellus, Utica, et cetera. Associated gas that's getting produced with oil is growing as well. So I am, I am not super optimistic about a big upside cycle in natural gas. I think $2 is too cheap. $3 brings out a lot of supply and I think that's going to be our range. Hmm. You know, we've had we've had free gas if you will. We're flaring gas and and selling at a negative price in some areas that have been bottlenecked like the Permian was was zero gas price for a little while. That's cuz people want the oil. And they'll they'll accept the gas or give the gas away to get the oil out. I don't think that's the norm either. Too much below 2 bucks on a nationwide basis and you start turning off coal plants, coal-fired power plants, and turning on natural gas plants. And so I'm not super optimistic about gas in general, but two bucks is kind of toward the lower end of what I think is a reasonable range. Right. So does, is it going to take extremely cold winters and obviously the demand to go up? Is there any other ways that that gas price is going to go up? Yeah. How do we, how do we get out of this? Yeah. Well, you could run out of, you could run out of Good locations. I don't think we've. I don't think that's happening. We could yeah. export a lot more. Do you think anyone wants our gas? <laughs> I, I mean, I think 
yes, the answer is we're at four BCF a day of exports now, and it's going toward 10, and a lot of that's contracted. So the answer is yes, they want it. The question is, do they want even more beyond the yeah. projects that have already been built? And the answer to that is going to be time. Sure. So I think that we are a very cost-effective exporter of natural gas, and so I think it'll grow, but these are big projects. They're very lumpy, very episodic, and so the global LNG market probably doesn't need new export capacity from us until, you know, well after 2025. And so I think that we could run out of locations. That's not happening in the near term. We could add a bunch of new demand. That's not happening in the near term. And so maybe if you if you mandated turning off all coal-fired power, you, yeah. you'd get gas to step in. The challenge to that is the folks that want us to turn off all the coal-fired power don't want us to use natural gas power. They want us to go to renewables, you know, wind and solar. And so it's hard It's hard to see how you wind up in a $5 gas environment anytime in the reasonable future. No kidding. So what are companies, you know, say EQT, for example, I mean, are they banking on contracts or like what keeps them motivated to, to keep staying in business or what keeps them afloat, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, we, we consume, you know, 95 BCF a day or something like that. And so we still need oil and gas and, and gas is the topic here. And so what's going to, what's going to do it is, or why does EQT, they're the biggest gas producer in the country. If they just decided to go away, that would create a gap. And so, I mean, they're, they're trying to do all the stuff that makes sense, lower their, you know, lower their cost structure, try to get, you know, they've got a lot of expensive transportation, try to get their transportation costs down over time. But, you know, at at the end of the day, EQT is still generating a lot of cash flow from the gas they're selling. The question is just, you know, could they generate more if prices were better? For sure. So, you know, I think we need the EQTs of the world. Of course. We just... We just don't need them to grow particularly quickly in in this environment. Fair enough. No, I like that. So I want to respect your time. I have a few more questions more related to more of the personal side of things. What excites you personally the most about what you're doing here at Pickering? I mean, there's I would imagine there's lots of opportunity the way things are going, but what's exciting to you right now? Like from a personal standpoint? Yeah. So... It's fun to build a business, and that's what we're doing at the firm. You know, yeah. we've been around for 10-plus years as the asset management business of Tudor Pickering Holt. We started back in 2010, but we've now spun out to create our new firm. That happened back in September of 2019, and so what am I excited about? I'm excited about the fact that we're in the sixth year of a downturn. Yeah, I think there's a cyclical recovery out there. When things are bad and they're bad for a while, you know, you'd get worn out. When things are good, I mean, it's fun to be in a business that's improving and growing. And so that's in front of us. And so I'm excited about sort of deploying capital now because I think people will be much more excited about the the oil patch in the next two or three or four years. And yeah. so we'll make some money for our investors by selling some of the companies that we're investing in now. So that's exciting. You know, we're thinking about new businesses, whether it's consulting to to energy companies. We're thinking about how we participate in all of this kind of energy transition, renewables, climate, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll we'll be adding some capabilities to the firm. That's exciting. And so, you know, there's always opportunity. Yeah. And I'm 
excited that we're we're five years into a downturn, not one year into a downturn <laughs> that's going to be five, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The saving grace is we didn't think this was going to be a five-year downturn or we'd have gotten pretty depressed. No kidding. You know, two or three or four years ago. So yeah. you grind through it and look forward to the stuff in front of you. Sure. Well, I think the light, there, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. And, and certainly, you know, as someone like yourself leading, you know, the ship, if you will, you need to keep the troops motivated and Always. and confident and, and create the culture that says, hey, we're going to get through this together. We're all going to be able to party at the end of it and just keep grinding, like you said. So You bet. And I, th- I think the other thing is, is if you can find a way for as a, if you can find investments that work in the current environment. Mm. Imagine what, you know, if, if it works at 50 oil and $2 gas, imagine what it's going to look like at 65 or $70 oil and 250 or $3 gas. And you don't have to count on prices getting better, but, but if they do, yeah. that's really nice upside. And having good people helps, and we got a lot of good people here. Most definitely. You mentioned earlier a little bit, you touched, you, you mentioned S&P. And just this kind of randomly popped into my head, but the S&B has been on a tear for the last, what, eight, 10 years? Longest economic expansion in history, yep. So what happens when that decides to plummet or we make a huge correction in the market? I mean, how would that affect what you do? Yeah, it is It is always better to be in a bull market than a bear market. For sure. Period. And so if the economy slows down, that is, a, I mean, we've been growing at a million plus barrels a day for, for oil Gas demand has grown nicely. If the economy slows, growth would slow for, for energy. It may not go negative. You know, energy demand, oil and gas demand's grown 38 of the last 40 years or 43 of the last 45 years or something like that. And so, but growth could slow and that makes life harder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you ask me the things I worry about, it's not the end of consumption of oil and gas because everyone drives an electric car and, you know, Uber's <laughs> autonomous taxis are taking, you know, picking you up. Yeah. What what I worry about is the economy slows and yeah. just as energy is cyclically starting to improve, right. the demand side weakens. And that's why, you know, you look at some of these crazy world events that have been happening and, you know, the Iran conflict with the US, for instance, and that in theory could shut off supply, but it could also be really bad for global economies. Mm. You know, what happens when, you know, what happens when all this cheap money comes to an end. You know, there's a lot of folks that think we've had this bubble that's inflated, uh, you know, cheap money has inflated a lot of asset values. And at some point that's going to have to correct. So the answer to that is I think energy is somewhat insulated from the perspective that it's performed so poorly. So there's just fewer people to sell it and the values are cheaper. So I think I'd be much more concerned about owning a tech stock that's you know, up 600% in the last mm. two years than I am about owning an energy stock that's down 50% in the last two or three years. Okay. But you don't, economic slowdown's not great. Right, right. For anybody. No, it's, yeah, I'm interested to see what the next, you know, near future looks like. Cause it's just, you look at it on a, on a 10 year scale and it's like, it, it looks like a, a cliff is about to drop and I, I hope it doesn't. But I mean, the reality is it, and maybe it does keep going. I, I don't know. I'm not a finance guy. I'm just a dumb roughneck from Alberta, Canada. But when I see that trend, it kind of worries me. But at the end of the day, you know, just if you work hard, I think things will play out. And so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Two more questions for you. You know, again, you, you're you're constantly looking at the market. You've got meetings after meetings. You're researching. 
what do you have any daily habits or routines outside of work that help you stay focused and help you recharge to to stay you know dialed in day to day wow interesting question so most people would probably talk about their workout regimen or something like that i'm terrible about working out so i don't have i don't have a a great you know tip that i run three miles and that helps me get (laughs) focused sure you know for me my kind of my habits i like this stuff the big recharge is that in our world things change every day Mm -hmm. and so you know i last thing i do before i go to sleep what is what is Bloomberg News saying is going on in the world? First thing I do when I wake up, what does Bloomberg say news say is going on in the world? So I like kind of my habits are paying attention to the news to figure out what the market's going to throw at me in a given day. Okay. And then trying to take a step back from that. And my wife and I just had a little baby, my first. She's less than a year old. Wow. And so the good news is I get to completely unplug yes. for an hour in the evening and an hour in the morning taking care of her. And so it's nice to not think about anything but family. A so huge congratulations. Yeah, thank wow. You. Thank you. It's very, very fun for us. But yeah, but that's, you know, trying to stay present in that those two periods of time when I'm home yes. and she's awake is that gives me a lot of perspective. Yes. So I have a four-year-old and I also have a, one, a 14-month-old. A bad habit that I have. So I'm involved with drilling operations, which 24-7, 365. When I get home, the emails are still coming in. The questions are still coming in. I have a hard time. Something I've had to work on very drastically is is putting my phone down and, and not looking at it when my daughter and my son are trying to play with me. Is that something you have a hard time doing? I mean, is or how did you overcome that? Or is that not an issue for you? Or like, how is being present difficult? And if it's so, hard. how do you do? Yeah, how do it's, you? Do it's super hard because in the world we live in, information is flowing all the time. There's, yeah. a, there's a gazillion distractions, and so I think you've got to try and focus on not being distracted. And right. so the answer is, I try to put my phone in my pocket and not and not mess with it. And the good news for me is, my clients aren't calling me in the early morning or late evening, but sure. you know, the, the information will be there an hour later. And <laughs> yeah. so I can digest it then. So I yeah. think what it does is it stretches your day a little bit, but in a good way. For sure. No, I like that answer. Final question. Is there a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in energy is listening to us right now? Talking to everyone in energy and, and this podcast should go to everyone in energy. So I appreciate it. We got to keep pushing it out there. What I would say is, is cyclical not secular okay so there is a light at the end of the tunnel paying attention to the environment that we're in so back to this value over volume comment or you know if you want money down the road give money back right Hmm. now would be another comment and i would just encourage folks to remember that that you know no trend lasts forever and so while we're six years into something challenging there's you know there's some better days ahead and trying to stay focused on getting to those better days is is kind of key so cyclical not secular the writing is on the wall mm-hmm. more more attention to to climate and then you know just just paying close attention to you know making money in this environment yeah i like it 
Well, with that being said, I've got a few housekeeping notes. If you'd like to take a moment and if you could review it, share the podcast, leave a five-star review. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. I've got a lot of great feedback on LinkedIn, so please keep the comments coming. And I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming events. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for January 2020. First of all, Happy New Year. We have a couple of great events coming up to kick off 2020 with y'all. The first one will be a Houston happy hour taking place on January 16th at the Cannon from 6 to 9 p.m. This event will be all about artificial intelligence for oil and gas. Reality, not hype. The event will feature a panel discussion and include drinks and snacks. Be sure to get your tickets. You can find our event right link on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook, or in our Modal Point newsletter every month. The next happy hour we're having is our Denver happy hour on January 30th from 4 to 6 p.m. at Liberty Oil Field Services. This event will have a panel of GEOs and feature a live recording of the Crude Audacity podcast. So it'll be super cool. Be sure to join us. Also get your tickets once again from the links posted in our Modal Point newsletter or on Oil & Gas Global Networks, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We also will be having a Pittsburgh happy hour sometime in February with the date coming soon. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Other events on deck include the Houston API Energy General Meeting on January 14th. Guest speaker Eric Switzer, VP Global Services of Baker Hughes, will be discussing accelerating transformation in oil and gas. The 2020 Industrial Market Outlook and Networking event will be on January 23rd in Houston, and they will be discussing the latest trends that will impact project spending in North America, including the Gulf Coast region, over the next 12 to 24 months. Lastly, the Wildcatters Ball will be held on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. The proceeds will go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and check in next month for the events on deck for February. All right, thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the winter or getting into spring, visit KTX Fit and Katie and get one of the, or get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank My you pleasure. so much. What's the best way for people to either access some of the stuff you've put out or obviously, you know, there's your website. There's a few I, I saw on your website. You have some some interesting some some clips you were on bloomberg things like that is that the best way is just hit up the website yeah website pickeringenergy.partners.com i'm on twitter at at pickering energy mm-hmm. and um, okay perfect yeah so twitter is twitter is the the sound bites and yeah. the websites the more detailed stuff okay so quick question energy fintwit what do you think <laughs> Ooh, i really enjoy what i see yeah. from the crowd on Twitter, yeah. hashtag EFT Energy Fintwit, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> what I would say is the group, there's a lot of people who have been around the patch for a while. Yeah. I think they're super cynical right now. And I would say that I think the risk for that group is that as the world improves, that cynical viewpoint, they will be cynical for a long time and that could be potentially really tough. Right? Okay. So I think that they've they've watched shale be a problem 
or become a problem, the world will get better. And I think they will remain skeptical too long. But it's a really smart group of people, and I enjoy kind of the interactions. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very comical. I go on there not only to get some good information, but to get a good laugh as well. Makes me very glad I am not an energy CEO, I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, everybody. Well, that's a wrap. And please always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.